Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden, and you're listening to Queer Stories, the podcast for the LGBTQIA Storytelling Night I host and program. I run Queer Stories regularly in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, as well as one-off events in other cities and towns. Check out MaeveMarsden.com for dates and details. This week, Simon Hunt is a composer, performer, activist and writer who lectures in media at UNSW. But he is best known for his character Pauline Pantsdown, a drag simulacrum of politician Pauline Hanson. Simon's story is featured in the Queer Stories book and he performed it at Antidote Festival at the Sydney Opera House. Soon after this performance, Simon actually uncovered photos of him performing as Pauline Pantsdown at a resistance rally in 1998. He zoomed in and there I was in the front row looking up at him like I had just seen, I don't know, God or something. So it's pretty incredible that I now get to book him for events when as a 14-year-old I was looking it up with him with like prayer hands pose emoji, I think is the best description of how I was. Anyway, this is a beautiful story that he's written that has nothing to do with Pauline Pantsdown or me. Enjoy. On a 1986 summer's day in West Berlin, workers were building foundations for a children's playground and they suddenly dug up the old Gestapo torture cells. They'd been buried since the final bombings of 1945 and the playground architects had thought they were a bit further to the right, as you would. (laughs) Late that night, late that night, three drunken friends and I climbed under the police tape and went down into the pit, exploring the small white-tiled rooms filled with scattered debris, mud-caked clipboard folders, broken shelves, even a wartime calendar that seemed like a bad film prop. I found a small glass ampule and I held it up to the moonlight with a sudden sort of horror vision of an SS officer drawing out its contents with a syringe. In my head, of course, this was in scratchy black and white 16mm film because that's how I'd always seen the Nazis, like a distant past. But here, now, 1986, my sense of time was falling apart. The earth smelled fresh. The ampule was clear. Was this just yesterday? Or was it even longer ago? Am I in the ruins of ancient Pompeii? When is this? I mean... It's 1986, how could there still be Nazis in the world? But Berlin was also a futuristic science fiction TV movie. I'd arrived a few months before with my band, four days after the Chernobyl disaster. The Soviets were still underplaying it, but high radiation readings on food trucks arriving via East Berlin told the real story. On the first day, the government advised everyone not to eat any fresh fruit or vegetables. And so in Berlin, we lived on frozen meat and canned food for the next few months, empty cafe tables with abandoned salad on the leftover plates. On day two in Berlin, as the storm clouds drifted across from the east, the radio advised us to keep out of the rain because it might be radioactive. Completely ignoring this advice, we head for the Olympic Stadium in battering rain manned with industrial-sized umbrellas because at the age of 24, you're going to live forever and there's so much to do in a new town. We're the only people at Hitler Stadium and in the thunderstorm we stand in our umbrella circle around the giant Olympic bell. Its raised SWAT stickers have been clumsily welded over and then scratched out again and then painted over and then scratched back in again. The bizarre separation of the city into two quickly became normalised in daily life. 
in summer, I would sunbake naked on the eastern side of the narrow Kreuzberg riverbank with Dean, a member of my band, right next to the wall. Officially, the riverbank was East German territory, even though it was physically on the western side of the wall because the wall was following the river at this point. One day, some East German guards leaned over the top of the wall, telling us that we were trespassing on East German land, and they proceeded to take naked photographs of us, which presumably still exists somewhere deep in the Secret Service archives. <laughs> Every day, I'd catch a train from work to my band's rehearsal studios. Both of these places were in West Berlin, but due to the odd shape of the wall, the train line would pass through these old, crumbling East Berlin ghost stations where no one had been allowed to board since 1961. Although these stations had identical architecture to the Western stations, they were lit only by a few flickering fluorescent tubes and they were always guarded by two East German guards with machine guns. And so you'd sit there and you'd pass through East, West, East, West, and after a few months, you'd just keep reading a newspaper. But today, a year into my Berlin stay, I'm watching Stephen on the train as he experiences it for the first time. Stephen is a friend of a friend from Sydney. He's on a European arts junket. He's carting around a collection of Australian Super 8 films between different experimental festivals. I ask him to help me carry some bags of coal up to my ratty apartment uh, so that it could be warm by the evening. So medieval, he exclaims in his sardonic Sydney Queen tone. It's a tone sort of coming across like a breath of a faraway summer. Can we go to some East Berlin gay bars, he asks. And I realised I don't even know if such a thing exists. Like, my world was like a, a straight electronic music post-punk scene full of people who took a lot more drugs than I did. And occasionally I'd sort of furtively dart into nights of disappointment at local West Berlin gay bars, but leave very quickly, bored by the music, not confident enough to sustain conversations. I want gay friends, but I never seem to have anything in common with them. Just quick sex and then I'm out of there. Like, you know, if it had Grinder in those days, I would have had um, looking for sex between studio recording and dinner and then sort of, you know, uh, disclaimer, dinner not included, or something like that. <laughs> and at the time, I'm proud when straight people are surprised to find out I'm gay. I'm weirdly proud that they assume I'm something I'm not. It's like, you know, look, you thought I was human, but I stripped my flesh away and I am indeed a robot underneath, you know? <laughs> So, of course, so drag was a good 13 years in the future at this point. Anyway, I doubted that gay bars could be any better over on the eastern side, but a few phone calls later, we've got an address, so I'm about to find out. The train emerges from the darkness of the ghost stations to East Berlin's Friedrichstrasse, which functions as both a line exchange and a border crossing point. Long winding queues to reach the glass window where you hand over your passport, and then you get the famous East Berlin triple scan. The official stares at you for five seconds. And then he stares at your photograph for five seconds and then cycles this two more times. It's a long process. With German body language, the length of time you're allowed to stare at someone is much longer than in Australia. And in the first few months, I misinterpret curious stares on public transport as either a desire to fuck me or kill me. <laughs> East German border guy doesn't look like he wants to have some fast love. <laughs> Nevertheless, he lets Stephen and I pass and we're ushered into East Berlin on a day pass back by midnight. We follow the map a few blocks to our scribbled address. All eyes pivot to Stephen and I as we enter the bar and we embark on a walk of shame to a spare booth. 
It's like a 1950s-style narrow milk bar. It's got, like, long rows of small booths, mirrors on both sides, and just millions of, like, lamps. Lamps all dimly lit, but there's hundreds of them. They're all sort of on little shelves, and a whole lot of them have been taped to the mirrors at the side. It's like uh, you've got, like, a terrified lamp shop owner, and they've desperately tried to get everything off the ground before a flood. Where are we? Is this, is this even a gay bar? It's all whispers and furtive glances and everyone is so old. I mean, they're at least in their mid-30s. <laughs> a much younger guy leans his back against the drinks area and he faces the booths with a studied nonchalance. A few dim figures pop up from the booths, walk over to him negotiating in low tones before the victor marches him out in the front door. It's all very grim, it's back in that black and white film again, and we leave. On the street outside, we run into Klaus, an 18-year-old who's meeting local friends at, a, at an underground party nearby, and he invites us to join him. Stephen doesn't speak German, so he wants me to ask Klaus about gay bars, but I, th I think Klaus is straight, so I don't want to sort of like risk anything before we've had a chance to check it out more. Nearby turns out to be a half-hour's walk. Street lighting becomes more sparse as we head further from the centre, and I start getting a little worried about the midnight deadline for Westerners to be back at the border. Missing that means jail. When we reach the warehouse, it takes a moment for my eyes to adjust to the dim lighting. There's red and blue cellophane covers draped over rows of light bulbs. The last chorus of the Sex Pistols punk anthem, Pretty Vacant, is blasting through the small distorted PA system. And there's about 20 teenagers in classic 1976 punk clothing this is in the 80s, Poe going up and down on the dance floor. It's like a VHS TV commercial for 20 greatest punk hits or something. <laughs> but just as we sit down, the music abruptly switches to 1950s rock and roll. The punks, who are half the crowd, sit down, and then the rock and rollers all stand up on the other side. <laughs> Girls in poodle skirts, boys of greased back hair, they shake, they rattle, they roll. And I can see that everyone's actually about 16 to 18. We've actually ended up at this underground Saturday evening school dance. <laughs> the music switches between punk and rock and roll every three or four songs, yet there's this peaceful coexistence between the two halves who all respectfully talk amongst themselves and wait patiently for their turn. Klaus, who's brought us here, he's one of the oldest here and he's commanding some respect. So he leads us to a darker corner where vodka is, is quietly added to the cordial jars. Very good Russian vodka in East Berlin. Why has this been kept secret, Stephen asks. And Klaus explains that some of the kids there have parents who are informers and that even though they're attending an illegal event, they might create chaos if they go home drunk. So the underground party has its own underground section. The Russian vodka takes hold and we relax into our unexpected evening. Everyone's very friendly, it's completely different to the gay bar. But suddenly the music stops. Overhead white lights blast on. I panic, is this a raid? Only Stephen and I are reacting, so we say, say Klaus, what's going on? He says, oh, it's the 15 minute break. <laughs> and wanders off to refill the cordial jars. <laughs> what are we having a break from, Klaus? He said, oh, from, from the atmosphere, of course. And indeed, after 15 minutes, the party suddenly resumes, and we later discover that the official state-led youth dancers have a compulsory 15-minute break, and this cultural practice is carried on into the underground. <laughs> Stephen and I are completely smashed by the time we reach the border. It's 10 minutes before the midnight deadline. It's sort of like this Cold War Cinderella scenario. <laughs> Klaus points to the Berlin Wall. Look at that thing, he says, and he suddenly grabs me by the waist and lifts me up. 
he said, when I was a kid, I wanted to see what was over it. And now, you know, sometimes I wonder if there's anything worth seeing there at all and sort of trails off not finishing the drunken thought. <clears throat> but then he says, bist du schwuler? Are you gay? And I say, oh, y yes. And he goes, ah, so habe ich gedacht. I thought so, he said. Stephen's been looking at you all night, Simon. I don't translate for Stephen. <laughs> I'm not gay, says Klaus, but we are, we are all happy in the world together. It's like this exploding sort of Disney princess moment, but there's, <laughs> there's like a, a real heart in it. And we all embrace before Stephen and I head back into the station across the line that Klaus is not allowed to cross. On the sleepy train journey, Stephen leans over and just suddenly kisses me. But I gently pull back, holding his stare for an, an almost German length. <laughs> You see, I finally, finally, I've made a gay friend, like someone I can go on adventures with and I don't want to ruin it at all. I've actually, I found a friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review the Queer Stories podcast to boost my ego and help spread the word. For tickets and dates, follow Queer Stories on Facebook. And for late night rants and photos of my dog, Frank, follow me, Maeve Marsden, on Twitter. For discount tickets to my shows, as well as other perks, become a supporter of my work on Patreon for as little as $4 a month. Details on mavemarsden.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.